If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's bow for prayer. Father, again, we are so grateful, Father, to you. You've been so good to us in so many ways. And fathers, we continue to to focus on you, to worship you. Fathers, we bow before you, not only in prayer, but Father, we bow our hearts, we bow our will to your word and what it says. We ask, Lord, that you will grant us a very strong desire to want your word to saturate our lives. That it would be our desire, Father, to, to seek to live in obedience to your word because we love you because we care for you. We pray, Lord, that your word would shape our minds and our hearts, that it would deeply affect our attitudes and the way that we think. The Father, we may live properly before you and before others. We thank you, Father, you've given to us your word. We pray, Lord, that we would always cherish your word. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul writes in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers." Again, the main thought that I want you to keep in mind as we work our way through this passage is that the church, that we, the church, must be vigilant in protecting our identity as a Christian community and to recognize it is more Christ-like to accept being wronged than to pursue retaliation of any kind. In the church or in this community, that is to be identified by its association to Christ, no interpersonal differences should be irreconcilable. That is what the Word of God is teaching us here. Let me give you some background to what Paul is writing about here in chapter 6. First of all, when it comes to the court system, to the Roman court system, the fairness of the Roman criminal system was, I guess you would say at best, questionable. And then when it came to the courts and the local magistrates, they were simply downright rigged, and they were rigged mostly against the poor and against the weak. The magistrates were elected by the elites of society to preside over all the commercial and commerce disputes. The jurors in all these cases were required to be wealthy. They had to have a net worth that exceeded 7,500 denarii, or basically They had to have a net worth that equaled about $375,000. That would be based on a denarii being a day's wage. 
So imagine that we have a court system where all of our local judges are, are basically elected, but only by those who are wealthy. So if you're not wealthy, you don't have a say. And then when, again, when it comes to picking the jury, the jury had to be those who had a, a net value of at least $375,000. And they were the ones who were going to decide whatever case that you were involved in. The whole system that the Romans had was designed to give the wealthy an advantage. They would manipulate the outcome, and the manipulation of the outcome would have been orchestrated through bribes, social pressure, and powerful friendships. So kind of like how you see in the movies where the healthy would kind of rub shoulders with each other, rub elbows with each other at, at parties, and they would kind of discuss various aspects of business or maybe some upcoming case. And if you were buddies with the judge, you would talk to him about your case. That wouldn't have been viewed as being unethical. That would have been viewed as being smart. And so you would put a cocktail in his hand and maybe uh, promise him some things if he ruled in a certain way. And that's kind of how business was done. If two people of equal standing uh, were um, going to court against each other, they had equal standing and let's say equal wealth, then basically the way that the winner was determined by the jury was by whoever had the best ability to discredit uh, the other and bring dishonor on them, then you would be declared the winner. That was literally how they would do it. They would kind of watch and you would slam each other. I guess they would take dirty politics to a new level. And uh, whichever one was the most successful would be the one who would win the case. So with that kind of system, imagine then that you have two house churches and you have the leader of each house, of each house church. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, they were, they were kind of equal in their standing in society. And they were fairly close to being equal in their wealth. And they were against each other for whatever the reason. And so they were basically coming to the court system and what they were going to do is they were going to do their best to discredit the other. In other words, they were going to follow the norms and the methods of the culture. Uh, they were showing that they were viewing the norms and the standards and methods of the culture to be much more significant and maybe even much more powerful than the teachings of Christ. And so they were going to court and they were basically slamming each other, uh, airing out dirty laundry, whether it was true or not. Uh, trying to unearth every possible advantage they have uh, to win in, in court. And of course, what was basically taking place is many individuals in whatever city they were in were very much aware of what was going on in court. And they say, aren't these guys, uh, aren't they like Christians? And, and it was very much uh, a spectacle that was, that was taking place where people were very much aware that these Christians were involved in this. And, and treating each other in this way. And so that's why Paul then begins in verse 1 by saying, Dare any of you, having a matter against one another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. He just can't believe it. He's already been talking to them about the division in the church. And this is only going to make matters worse. In fact, it's making matters worse. And it was hindering the work of God. That was his main concern. When, when Christians are doing this kind of thing, the work of God is being hindered. So once again, what we have to remember, what's important for us to remember as Christians, is once again, our faith is never private. You and I are never individuals that have zero effect on other people. We always have an effect on other people. We always have an influence. 
And the kind of influence we're going to have, the kind of influence that the Bible wants us to have, we would basically say we need to have a Christian influence. That does not mean that we are going to be a traveling evangelist and always shouting the gospel to individuals. But it is very much this idea that you and I are going to behave biblically, that we're going to reveal that our commitment to Christ is a genuine commitment, and that the power of Christ, the transformative power of Christ, is indeed legitimate to the point that it affects the way that I treat other people, the way that you treat other people. That needs to be seen by the world. The world needs to see how we treat each other as well as how we treat the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake because we are the ones who are to carry that message to the world. We are the ones who are, who are to live our lives and reveal the power, the transformative power of God. And too often what takes place is, as Christians, as a group, and as individuals, we do that very poorly. Like sometimes it's, it's, we, we almost try to hide, not that, not that we're denying that we're Christians, but we don't really make it that big of a deal, so to speak, so that our actions, we're just like everybody else. We're just, you know, we're, we're doing, I guess you could say, we're, we're living morally and, and uh, we're, you know, we're trying to get ahead. And there's nothing really distinctive about us. And there may be many things that the world's not going to see in our lives that, that is distinctive. But there are certain things that they will always be able to see, and it's this. It's the way that we treat each other, the way we get along, the way we treat non-believers, the way we treat people. They will always see that. That's always on display. And that's what Paul is getting at here. So with the word dare here, basically what he's, what he's getting at is he's, he's stating, so you have the courage to act this way in light of God's command and power. What they're revealing is that they have a very low view of God. Or, or, or maybe what, what they're revealing here is, um, I guess you would say, an attitude of ungodliness. Remember, I... I I try to point out often when we go through Romans chapter 1 where it talks about that the, the wrath of God or the anger of God is, is seen, it's known to men, and that God is angry about unrighteousness and ungodliness. And remember that that's not just a repetition of words there. Those two words mean something very different. Again, unrighteousness uh, are the wrong things people do when you lie, when you cheat, when you steal, when you betray. That, that, that those are acts of unrighteousness. Ungodliness is a very different word. And what ungodliness, the word picture there, what it's trying to describe for us is an individual who lives their life as if God is just unimportant. So that it is not implying that the individual is necessarily immoral. It is not implying that individual is necessarily even unrighteous in the way that they act. But they simply live their life, and there's no indication that God is in any way important to them. They're, they're not living by his commands. They don't consider the commands of God. There, there doesn't seem to be anything in their character that would reveal them or, or manifest that they are somehow uniquely an individual who follows Christ. And so that's what ungodliness is again. So it's living your life as if God isn't important or living your life as if God doesn't exist. The, the, the practical outworking of either one of those is going to be the same. And so these individuals that Paul here is writing to, or this church actually, that's the way they are behaving. That's the way they're acting, as if what God has said is just not important. And so they are, they are, uh, uh, they, they have, they are daring, so to speak, 
to, to live this way. Really, I guess you would say an open rebellion to what God has said. So he then begins to ask some rhetorical questions. Questions that, that he is assuming they already know the answers to. The answers to these questions are already yes. And, and he's trying to make a point with these things. So verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? It's because the saints will judge the world. And when you read uh, in various places in the New Testament, it makes that clear that we're going to be involved in judging the world. He says, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So again, the rhetorical question is, look, if you are going to be involved in, in this position of, of great authority in the future, and you're going to be judging the world as a whole, he's really saying, so how is it then that when it comes to these small matters between people, you're suddenly unable to figure this out? And that's what he's getting at. He's, he, he can't, he's almost like he's beside himself. He just can't believe that they can't work this out. It's almost as if you and I sometimes, you know, let's say you have more than one child at home and when they're young, and let's say they're, they're not, there's something they're arguing about. And let's say that it's something that's, I guess we might say it's usually pretty small stuff, but let's say they're, they're just not getting along over something small. And we sometimes, uh, as we are scolding them, may express our disdain, like, why do I have to come back here and settle this? Can't you two figure this out? This is so simple. And so that's kind of the idea here with this, is that he's just surprised that, that they're just they're unable, and really what we know, uh, the real case is they're unwilling to work it out. It's not that they're unable. He's showing they're able. He is just bringing up the idea that they're unwilling to work this out. So if the saints would judge the world, then they can certainly judge minor cases or matters between believers. Again, verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So again, same idea that we're going to be judging angels and the things that go on in the spiritual realm. So if we're, if we're going to do that, how, how, how is it then that we're unable to deal with small matters here and now? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? What he means by the phrase, those who are least esteemed, he's talking about those who have no merit or worth. The, the idea here is that the church recognizes that the court system that Rome had was rigged. They all knew that. They had a very low view of judges, kind of like, you know, most of us have a pretty low view of most politicians. We just, that's just kind of, that's usually the general consensus, is we just don't think much about them. We're usually disappointed. Uh, we're usually disappointed every single day. No, we won't go to that. But the point is, is that we just don't view them very highly. And so here he's saying, so why would you do this? this? Again, this makes no sense. This is irrational. Those that you view as being on the take, those that you know are unrighteous, and yet as Christians, you're taking your matters to them to settle. And what he's saying is don't be like the world. Don't be like the world that has a sense of disdain for the poor and give favor to the wealthy or the prominent because that's what the judges did and that's what they're condoning but that's what they're going along with when it comes to what they're doing with each other. Now, let me just point this out because we don't want to get lost in this because sometimes what happens is this. Because in the last verse that I read, he talks about the fact that um, he's surprised and they shouldn't be doing this where they're suing each other. Sometimes what happens is we see that and we may think this. Well, I'm not suing anyone else. And we kind of dismiss the entire point of the passage. 
And that's where we have to make sure that we're very careful, that we're trying to exclude ourselves because of a certain thing that is mentioned in the passage. So that is the extreme of what's happening. They are, some of them are, suing each other in court over small matters. And that's what's kind of bringing this to a head. But that, that is not the limit. This is not, this is not a teaching that is only for those who are taking each other to court. Because he's getting at an, 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 an attitude here, a principle that we are to possess as Christians. And the principle that we are to possess is this is that our identity as Christians, the fact that we identify with Christ as individuals and as a group, is to have such a profound impact on us as individuals and as a group that we then should adopt as normative the principle that others are going to wrong us in all kinds of ways and we're just not going to worry about it. You're not going to worry about it. You're not going to seek to vindicate yourself. Because that's what a lot of us do. What we think is, I'm not suing anyone, I'm off the hook. But we're going to vindicate ourselves. And too often, maybe very often, what happens is with Christians, within churches, outside of churches, in all different ways, either upset each other in one way or another, over, it doesn't really matter what it is, And because we refuse to accept being wronged, it it goes against human nature, but we refuse to accept being wronged, we're going to have our pound of flesh. We're no different than the world. Now, the world is going to misunderstand most of that. What does that matter if the world misunderstands? It doesn't matter. We are accountable to God himself. And this is the principle that he's giving us. And what he's telling us here is that when it comes to conflict, and we should all know this, not all matters of conflict are going to be resolved. There may be some matters of conflict that are unresolvable. How are we going to deal with that? And too often what happens is, is it's, it's almost like what kids do on a playground. I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do this to hurt you, I'm going to do this to embarrass you, or, or whatever it happens to be. And it, it's wrong when that takes place. It is not Christ-like. We are stating that we are more concerned about ourselves than we are about Christ. And we must be concerned about our character as Christians. That's why he says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. When he says, I say this to your shame, that's exactly what he means. He is exposing them as not being worthy of their standing as followers of Christ. That's what he's getting at. He's not saying that this is just, that this is a sin and they should be embarrassed by this. It is a sin and they should be embarrassed by this. What he's getting at is that they are showing themselves, they are revealing, they are manifesting that they are not worthy to be associated with the name of Christ. And so once again, this is what the world is going to see. The wor- I think the world needs to see us being wronged and that we take it. Hopefully, what some will ask is, why do you take that? Then you can say, because I love Christ, because Christ loves me and we can explain it. In the same way, you may see a a marriage where one of the spouses may be 
mistreating the other. I'm not talking about physical abuse, but let's say uh, one of the spouses is a little rude uh, towards their wife or their husband, uh, disrespectful. Let's say that we kind of noticed this has been going on for a while. Maybe you're talking to the one who's your friend, who's the one being uh, disrespected or dishonored, and we say to them, why are you putting up with this? And they may not have much of an answer, except they may put the words out, well, I love him or I love her. But that's, that's what love does. That enables that individual to take that. We say, I would never take that. Well, you would never take that from them. Because you don't love that person like they, like they love them. You probably put up with it uh, from your spouse or from others that we love and care for. But the bottom line is, is that th- that's where we are to be as individuals. We are to have such a great love for Christ that that, in a sense, bleeds over into a great love for each other. And therefore, then when we are wrong by others, when someone says something that may be completely false about you, that hurts you deeply, we take it. We're, we're not seeking retribution. We're not seeking vindication. We're not trying to, sometimes we, we think, well, I just, we just, I just want others to know that I'm not that kind of person. I don't think we have to worry about that. I don't think we have to pursue that. It's, it's not worth the effort because it's not about us. It's easy to say that phrase. It's very difficult to live that out because of what that means. If we're taken advantage of or, or feel that we're being taken advantage of or a kindness is being taken advantage of. Now, I'm not getting to all this stuff where I know there are times we need to be firm, but even when it comes to those situations, being firm with others should always be for their sake, not for your sake. What is best for them? It's not about you and, and how you are treated. We, we should gain our confidence because of our relationship with Christ. I know who I am because of who Christ is. I know I am accepted because of Christ. So I'm not caught up in all these things. I don't have to get caught up. And, and as we continue to mature as believers, you know, in, I guess you would say in the beginning stages of when we begin to adopt this principle, on the inside, you may still be rather upset at what others are doing or saying, but on the outside, we're not seeking to be vindicated, and that's a good thing, but we're not there yet. As we continue to mature, what's supposed to happen, or what should happen, is more and more, when there are cases where individuals will do things uh, to us, whether inadvertently or on purpose, our spontaneous reaction will be much more subdued. Because our heart's changing. Because that's the key. It's not just an outward changing to this. It's, it's changing on the inside. To where I don't have to suppress my feelings of anger anymore. I don't have to suppress my desire for retribution. I don't have to suppress my desire for vindication. I really am okay with it. Not because I'm better than anybody else. Because Christ is, is changing who I am. And along with that, changing my priorities. Changing the way that I think. And that's why Paul is so aghast here, because this church should be at this point in their maturity. They've been around long enough, at least as a group, they should be there, and they're not there. And so that's why he says that he says these things to shame them. Again, he's exposing them as being not worthy of their standing as followers of Christ. Again, Paul is saying that the church is showing by their conduct and attitudes that the Christian community is no different from any other political community. I guess that would be the dirtiest thing you could say about a church. Is they're no different than the Democrat 
or the Republican Party. I don't know about you, but man, I would hate for that to be said. Again, there may be individual politicians that you like, but overall, we, you know, kind of feel that politics is just, and more and more now than ever, it's, just, it's a lot of dirty business that goes on. And we should accept, we should understand that. Most of them are non-believers, so I don't know what we're expecting there to be. But the idea that we are no different than maybe an interest group, any other secular political group, should be something that we should just not only want to wash our hands of, but flee from. So that's why he says in verse 6, brother goes to law against brother, and again, and that before unbelievers. It was unheard of in Rome to sue a member of your own family. As, as dirty as their justice system was, they, they didn't sue their own family. That's what these people are doing. When a believer takes a believer to court, there was one time I received a, a, a phone call from an individual. It was a matter going on in another church between two people. Both parties were Christians, and I, and I was familiar enough with both individuals that I knew that they were believers. And uh, one was involved in construction and had been hired by the other to do some work at their house, and things hadn't gone well. The issues weren't being resolved. The one individual did not want to go to court, and they were calling me saying, what should I do? And, you know, me, I'm convinced that everybody who calls himself a Christian loves the Bible as much as I do. And I go, this is easy. Just go to your pastor, explain it. He should call you in and call this other individual in. And as Christians, you kind of hash this out and you work it out and everything gets fixed. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, somebody may have to lose a little bit here or there, but you know what? We're Christians. This is what we do. And so I kind of explained how the process could work, and they said, wow, this is great. And uh, they called me back and said, my pastor doesn't want to touch this. And I said, well, you need to go back and say, this is what the Bible says. <laughs> it's really hard, but, you know, I, I'm trying, you know, it, it's not going to look good for me to go over there. And you know, they're thinking, who are you anyway? You don't pastor this church, you pastor another church. So I said, just show them 1 Corinthians, and kind of went through those things. And so... I, I guess they did, and eventually they were kind of called in, and uh, it, it didn't go well at all. And this is where it gets really hard. Then it was dropped. And so the one person, from what I could gather, from what I knew, one person had been basically ripped off, and the church refused to do anything about it. And part of the difficulty, and this is where the attitudes of Christians, sometimes a Christian comes in, and says, whoa, 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 this has got nothing to do with the church. This is my business. You don't know what's going on. You have no right. And you kind of go down the list. And I'm thinking, we've really moved pretty far from the Bible. Because I believe the church absolutely has a right and a duty to work that out. And the believers have a duty to each other and to Christ to work it out. It's going to be hard, uncomfortable, awkward, and all the rest. And we may even be unhappy. But too often what happens is even if a church tries to go the next step in forcing these individuals to work out, one of them is going to get angry and then they're going to leave the church. And that's what people do. They conflict because what's more important than our identity with Christ? Apparently it's money or our feelings or other things. And we're just, we're just, we're so stinking rebellious. So many ways. 
I, I, I think I, I told this story a long time ago. I'll tell it to you quickly. When I was uh, in Hawaii, uh, I was a pastor at a very a small church for a couple of years. And uh, I made a bad decision. I bought this van that I should not have purchased because I couldn't afford it. But I bought it anyway. And uh, I ended up coming across a Christian businessman who had a business in Waikiki. And he needed a van. And so we worked it out to where he didn't have the money to buy it. But he basically paid me. He rented the van from me. And he used it for his business. And so everything was great for three months. And then he didn't. The next month there was no money, and then there was no money, and I went to go see him, and I said, well, first I called him. I said, what's going on? You know, you've broken your word, and, you know, all these things. And uh, so basically, uh, after seven more months went by, he said, you just come get it. You know, he wasn't very nice. Um, I wasn't in a very good mood. Uh, so I went down to, uh, to Waikiki to his office to go get the van, um, I was still in my late, I was in my late 20s, so I wasn't as mature as I should have been, and I had a very strong temptation. Now, I resisted the temptation. Um, I, it, at first, there was a, a fleeting temptation to do him bodily harm, but that, that was wrong. Um, but there was a very strong temptation to throw his desk through the window. I, was, I just kept thinking about how good that would make me feel. To do that, I know that sounds stupid, but when you're 28, that's the way you think sometimes. And uh, anyway, I came walking in. Of course, I didn't do anything because God is good. And I grabbed the keys, and I was just so upset. But then the, the thing that was interesting was the whole time I was thinking all of that, what kept popping into my mind was, in the end, it was really all my fault. Because I made the bad decision to buy the van in the first place. And none of this would be happening if I hadn't done that. It was my fault. And even though he still did me wrong, I'm a Christian. And I need to act like a Christian. And Christians don't hit other Christians, and they don't throw their desks through windows, and they don't do any of those things either. And so I, you know, asked the Lord to forgive me for entertaining that, because I entertained the thought for way too long. And, of course, what kept screaming in my head was this passage, which basically says, why aren't you satisfied in just being wronged? Why would you not rather be wronged? That is the principle that God wants us to follow. If it costs you money, then it costs you money. That doesn't matter. Why? Because our concern should be for Christ and our identity with Christ. Remember this. When we talk about the gospel, when you look at it from this angle, remember that Jesus was willingly was willing to be wronged for our sake. Because remember that he was. How many of the charges were true? None. How many of the testimonies matched? None. How many of those trials that he went through, uh, how many of them were, were a, what we would consider to be a righteous or just trial? None of them. He was willing to be wrong for our sake. He was also wrongfully sentenced. He was wrongfully killed on the cross. And we do need to follow his example. I'm not trying to be overdramatic and say that we should be crucified for others because I'm not using that word. I'm just simply going back and saying this. We need to be willing to be wronged for the sake of Christ. We need to be willing to accept being wronged instead of seeking retaliation or vindication. Once again, Paul's main concern is the identity of the church, our identification as a community that is committed to Christ, and thus we should, by our attitude and conduct, manifest the spirit and the character and the transformative power of Jesus Christ. Paul here again is saying that if Christians use the same methods 
or means to settle disputes as non-Christians, then there is no real difference between us and any other interest group or political group or secular group. We should be looking to Christ for guidance as to how to handle and settle disputes. It is better and more Christ-like to be wronged than to sacrifice one's testimony. And so I trust that what you will do as a believer is that you will examine your life, examine your attitudes when it comes to these kinds of situations and circumstances, and, and ask the Lord to remind you that of this principle, that we need, this needs to be a daily principle that we live by. The idea of, of being crucified for Christ includes this idea of being wrong and being wrongfully accused and not seeking vindication. You and I will not be able, to do, be able to do this in the flesh. We can only do this as we rely on Christ to continue to change our heart and to give us the strength that we need. Christ will be glorified and honored if we live that way. You and I may not always see the positive results of that, but we don't need the positive results to be encouraged to live this way because the command of God should be enough because we love him and because he loves us. In this way, we honor him. In seeking to be vindicated or seeking retaliation, we do not honor him. We disrespect his name and we dishonor his character. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so grateful to you, Lord, for your willingness to send your son, knowing all the while that he was going to be wrongfully accused and wrongfully crucified for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to realize and to recognize that in reality, most of the time, it's a small thing for us to be willing to accept to be wronged. There will be times, Father, for some of us that it may come at a great cost. But Father, help us to realize that that is the most important thing. Father, I ask that you would help us with this. I pray, Lord, that for any and all believers here this morning, that if there are things in our life where we are refusing to be wronged, and we should, I pray, Lord, that those events, those circumstances, that situation would come flooding into our minds. That, Father, that we would have a, a healthy amount of guilt. That we would be prompted, Father, to act correctly. And what we mean by that, Father, is to live in obedience to your word. Father, for those who have already incorporated this principle in their life, even though we incorporate it imperfectly, how I pray, Lord, that you will bless them and that you will encourage their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that both the believing and non-believing world will take notice of those who accept wrong for your sake. I pray, Lord, our hearts would be encouraged to do the right thing. We thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.